says, we know by this that he abides in us by the Spirit whom he has given us, which leads us into his warning in the first of chapter 4. So would somebody read chapter 4, verses 1 to 6? Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God, and every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, of which you have heard that it is coming, and now it is already in the world. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them, because greater is he who is in you than he who is in the world. They are from the world, therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. So, there's the spirit he gave us, but there are other spirits as well. He said in 3.23 to believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ, but that's followed here by a prohibition against believing every spirit. You remember when he taught, taught in chapter 2 to love one another, he followed that up with, but do not love the world. So there are things to love and things not to love. There are things to believe and things not to believe. Uh, and in this case, you don't believe every spirit. There are a lot of false prophets gone out into the world. Uh, the Holy Spirit is not the only spirit that's around and is active. And so we need to have discernment. You know, he's talking about Christ and then Antichrist. Here you've got the Spirit and you've got false teachers and uh, false prophets, false spirits. So what we have to do is test them. We're trying to determine which spirits, which teachers, which prophets are from God. There are many false prophets he said in 2.18 there were many antichrists. So there's a lot of threat. And uh, some of these counterfeits are attractive. So we've got to be uh, careful about the sparkle and test the substance. Um, not everything that's supernatural is from God. Um, so so be, be watchful, be wary, be cautious. Now how do we test them? How do we know? which spirits are from God and which aren't. Well, he says in verse 2, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. Every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. So there's kind of the litmus test here. The, the, the false teachers do not confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh. I think these were pre-Gnostics, and I think they taught that matter was inferior to spirit. And so you really couldn't have the divine incarnated. You couldn't have God becoming flesh. What their idea was is that the Christ came down over the man Jesus when he was baptized. And the Christ left Jesus before he died. Therefore, they don't teach that Christ has come in the flesh. Christ sort of overshadowed the flesh. 
But they wouldn't say that Christ came in the flesh. They thought it was impossible for the Christ to become flesh, for him to take on a human existence. Um, so that's that's the test. That's something uh, that's key and critical. The, the test has nothing to do with what they say or think about themselves how we feel about them, their charm, their eloquence, their personality, has to do with the content of what they teach. The test is what they, what their testimony is about Jesus and about his truth. And they did not teach that the Christ was come in the flesh, therefore they are not from God, whatever else you may say. In fact, this is the spirit of the Antichrist that you've heard about and now it's here. Thoughts and comments to verse 3. So is all the talk, when he's talking about the Spirit, all meaning the same thing? Um, no. Well, not exactly. 24, and then 1, or in 2. Well, I mean, he's talking about God's Spirit, and then he's talking about these other spirits, so they're clearly different. Right. Uh, by this you know the Spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses. So how many spirits are there that confess that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh? Well, it's like anybody who confesses that is has the true spirit, I think is probably the idea. But he's almost there using every spirit in the sense of every, per, every person. Because we are spirit beings also. So, I mean, you do have uh, that are, you know, that that concept as well. Oh, that was going to be one of my questions. We're not necessarily assuming that, like, oh, a spirit is, like, floating in and telling them something. No, I don't think so. Okay, but more maybe, like, a person is teaching and they have, like, a spirit of teaching or something, and so they're <coughs> teaching truth or error? Well, I think the, the Holy Spirit inspired the apostles and prophets to okay, reveal yes. the truth, and then people who taught what they taught were teaching then by the Spirit, Yes, because okay. by what the Spirit revealed. And so then the false teachers, they're obviously not teaching by the Holy Spirit, they're obviously teaching by other spirits. Other spirit. Yes. Okay, okay. Exactly. Yes, that was kind of what I was Yeah. Other thoughts through three? So is that the same for today? The same test, the same spirit, because they, because like you were saying, they were teaching by the spirit only. They didn't have the written word, but they did have the things that the spirit taught them, even orally and through prophets and so forth. And so, somebody who would teach what the spirit taught uh, was was teaching from the spirit of God, at least in the standpoint it was what the spirit had revealed. We don't have today anybody teaching directly by inspiration. You know, there's nobody who directly reveals a new message from God. So we go back to what the Spirit has revealed in the apostles and prophets. So the bottom line is, you know, is this something directed at us to do, to continue to do yes. over and over, or you know, or was this something? Oh well, we have you know, direct 
teaching from the Holy Spirit, so test these spirits, and then once that's done, well, this is... There are bad spirits in the world today as well. <laughs> you know, they're false teachers. And so we, we, the way we come into access to the Spirit's revelation is different. You know, there's nobody who, like John, could just reveal the message, but we have it written now, and so that's what we tested by. Now he says in 4, 5, and 6, look at the beginning of each verse. You, they, and we. I think you as the readers, they are the false teachers and we are the apostles. We'll see if uh, you agree with that as we go through this. So we're in 1 John 4, 4. You are from God, little children, and have overcome them. Um, So he's giving encouragement to his readers that they had overcome by God in them. Greater is he who is in you than he is who is in the world. They have the strength and power of God. They have a firm reason for their assurance. They don't need to be unsettled by these false teachers who claim to have some special elitist, you know, edge and some special discernment or whatever. You know, you've overcome them because what you, who you have in, in God, in Christ, is greater than the one who's in the world. Alright, now five, they are from the world. Therefore they speak as from the world, and the world listens to them. Now that's the false teachers. Their mission finds success in the world because their teachings are compatible with what the world thinks. You know, it's congenial to the opinion that prevails in the world. Like attracts like. And so false teachers attract the world. They draw their teaching from the world, and therefore the world likes what they're saying. Uh, they, they're, they're popular, they're accepted. You know, sometimes uh, worldly people might say about some pastor or teacher, well, he just really speaks my language. Well, you may not want worldly people to be saying that about you. You know, uh, we shouldn't speak the language of the world. And uh, we, we eventually come to realize that the message of the gospel doesn't really attract the world very well. And there's a temptation to modify the message to get the world. When what this is saying is, you know... The, the world listens to the false teachers. The world doesn't listen to the Lord. So he says, we are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. And that's just the way it is. Those who really are from God will listen to the apostles, will listen to the truth, and those that aren't won't. You know, so we're like, how can I get these people to listen to me? How can I get them to believe the Bible? Or to believe what the Lord says? Well, you may not be able to. If they're not from God... They don't have a, like a, an attraction to that. They don't, they don't have anything in common with God's teaching. Uh, so they don't want it. Um, so how do we know? We are from God. He who knows God listens to us. He who is not from God does not listen to us. By this we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. You know, does it fit the truth? And, uh, you know... Are the people who are attracted to it the people who are God's people, or are they the world? 
You know, basically, you can tell whether the teaching's from God or not by what's being said and who's listening to it. If what's being said is what the Lord teaches and is who's listening are the Lord's people, then it's from God. God's children hear true teachers. The world hears, hears false prophets. So, if, if our idea would be, how can I get a message that will attract the world? We don't want to attract the world. God's message doesn't attract the world. Sometimes it will convert the world. But we don't want the world as the world attracted. We've got a message that repels the world. It attracts those who are with the Lord. So comments and thoughts through verse 6. like what he's told them all through the Old Testament. Like, I think we even talked about in Deuteronomy about testing the prophets. And yes. Like the exact same. Absolutely. We are in a world where people will claim to be speaking from God and claim to be accurate religious leaders that are not. We've got to be discerning. We've got to apply the test. We've got to verify see the person if the person is really telling us the Lord's will or not. Okay, other thoughts? Seven through, let me look at this, seven through eleven. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. The one who does not love does not know God, for God is love. By this the love of God was manifested in us, that God has sent his only begotten Son into the world, so that we might live through him. And this is love, not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Okay, now, he's, he's got this other big area here. We've dealt with it some in chapter 2, he's going to deal with it more here. Let us love one another. That's one of the three big tests. Three big tests, believing that Jesus Christ is coming in the flesh, uh, obeying, you know, walking in the light, etc., and, and love. And uh, so this is one of the big ones. wonder why he stresses love so much. It's kind of a test of authentic spirituality. I think because the false teachers had abandoned the group and were not acting in a loving manner toward their brethren. I think this is one of the things that's wrong with the false teachers. They didn't love their brethren. And so he he stresses, Beloved, let us love one another, for love is from God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. You know, he's saying that, you know, love is a part of God's nature. It's a quality of God. It's not just a quality of God. It's it's the essence of God. It's who God is. You know, uh, God is love. To say God is love is not the same thing as to say God loves. This is like God's whole essence is, is love. It conditions everything he says or does. Now, obviously, that's not the only thing God is. You can find other passages in the New Testament to say God is a consuming fire. God is spirit. You know, 
and uh, and things like that. But one of the things is that God is love. And so God reflects love in everything. If God is love, how can I have a relationship with God without love? I don't have any point of intersection with God except points in which I am loving. So, he says, by this the love of God was manifested in us. That God has sent his only begotten son into the world so that we might live through him. Now, that really shows God's love. You know, the point is, God is, is so defined by love that we ought to love as a reflection of God's love. How did God demonstrate his love? He sent his only begotten son into the world. The mission of the son was to come into hostile territory and rescue the lost. And God did this. God is repeated so many times in these verses because that's the marvel of this. That's the amazing thing. God was manifested. The love of God was manifested. God sent his only begotten son into the world. You know, God was willing to make that kind of sacrifice. Uh, God didn't send Abraham. He didn't send Moses. He didn't send a prophet. He didn't send an angel. He sent his son. He sacrificed his most beloved possession for another's gain. So this sets the pattern of love. You know, in this is love not that we loved God, but that he loved us. He took initiative. Now that's an amazing thing because we were the ones that had committed the offense. We were the ones that had created the barrier. We are the ones that had made the relationship with God uncomfortable. But Jesus is the one who gave himself to restore the relationship. You would expect God to just wait for the rebellious humans to send word up to the throne uh, that they're ready to, to negotiate or whatever. God seeks the lost. He sends his son. That's just an amazing, amazing thing. But what that means is, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. Now, I would not have said that. This is another one of John's conclusions that leaps a step. We would say, if God so loved us, we ought to love him. That's not what he says. If God so loved us, we need to love others. We need to show to others the love God has had for us. It is not right for us to hoard up God's love and bask in and enjoy God's love and not show it to those around us. God has given us love so we can love. Not just him, but one another. Comments and questions through 11. Twelve to sixteen. No one has beheld God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us, and his love is perfected in us. By this we know that we abide in him, and he in us, because he has given us his spirit. And we have beheld and bear witness that the Father has sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. And we have come to know and have believed the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. Okay. 
So nobody's seen God, but people can see God indirectly when we love each other. God's love is visible in the lives of his people who he has, he has put his love into their hearts. So we haven't seen God, but if we love one another, God abides in us and you can see God in us and his love is perfected in us. Now, think about what he's saying about the love of God. In 7 and 8, that's what God's all about. That's the essence of his character. In 9 and 10, God's love was manifested in sending his son. Now in 12, God's love reaches its goal when we practice love for each other. You see what that's saying in 12? No one has seen God at any time. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. God's goal is to bring us to love. God's love comes to fruition when it transforms us and makes us loving. That's, that's really an amazing thought. That the whole point of God's love is to bring us to love one another. That, that kind of puts the capstone on the loving work of God. Um, and so by this we know that we abide in him and he in us because he's given us of his spirit. Uh, we, have, we know that we have fellowship with God through the message of the spirit in 324 as well. And he says, we have seen and testified that the father has sent the son to be the savior of the world. Now, they are able to testify. I think that we here, the apostles, are able to testify because they had personal experience with the Lord. They have seen, and therefore they can testify. If you haven't seen it, you can't be a testimony, a, te- a, a witness. Yeah, one of those words. In Portuguese, it's all cognates. Um, you can't be a witness because you haven't seen it. But they have seen Jesus. And uh, so they are able to testify uh, that the about the these being historical things, you know, John doesn't just believe some philosophy. This isn't just some shot in the dark because well, it gives you hope. He says we have seen and testify that the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Now that is a profound summary of the gospel. Just think about that. The Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. That's exactly it. Now, if God sent the Son to be the Savior of the world, keep, keep practicing that in your head. You know, the Father sent the Son to be the Savior of the world. Think about how that makes these three tests that John keeps coming back to not arbitrary, but logical outgrowths of what God has done. Um, God has sent his son. Therefore, the doctrinal test. You have to believe that it's the son that God sent, that Jesus is the Christ. And then he says, he has sent his son to be the savior of the world. There's the social test. God's love is demonstrated in sending his son. Therefore, he wants us to love. But, but that he came, he sent his son to be the savior of the world. If Christ came as savior, we ought to quit the sins that he came to save us from. 
You know, when, when he says, here's how you test, you know, do, do they teach that Jesus Christ was coming in the flesh, we love one another, and, and are we walking in the light and, and living righteously? Those are, those are logical tests uh, based upon the principle that God sent his son uh, to be the Savior of the world. Comments and questions through 14. So whoever confesses that Jesus is the Son of God, God abides in him, and he in God. You have this kind of mutual relationship, mutual abiding in each other, uh, if we confess that Jesus is the Son of God. And we have come to know and to believe the love which God has for us. God is love, and the one who abides in love abides in God, and God abides in him. So we have to practice the same unselfish love, the sacrificial love, that's the essence of God's character. If everything God does is shaped by love, if we want to have some kind of contact with God, we're going to have to love. Because everything he does is involved with love. Comments or questions through 16? All right, 17 to 21. By this love is perfected with us, so that we may have confidence in the day of judgment. Because as he is, so also are we in this world. There is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. Because fear involves punishment, and the one who fears is not perfected in love. We love because he first loved us. Someone says, I love God and hates the brother. He is a liar, but the one who does not love his brother whom he has seen, cannot love God whom he has not seen. And this commandment we have from him, that the one who loves God should love his brother also. Because we have this closeness to God, we abide in God, God abides in us, then we have this confidence. His love is perfected in us, and we have confidence in the day of judgment. We see our connection with God. As we share God's love, then we go to the judgment with confidence because we know we're close to God. We know we share the same character, the same attributes. Uh, There's no fear in love because perfect love casts out fear because fear involves punishment and the one who fears is not perfected in love. You know, think about what fear does. You know, if you have a, a fear mentality, what are you thinking about? What's going to happen to you? What's going to happen to you? If you have a love mentality, what are you thinking about? What's going to happen to others? Okay. That's one big thing. Fear is self-centered. Love is self-surrender. Love is focused on others. Fear, especially in our relationship with each other, but really with God as well, fear will shrink from other people trying to to save ourselves in a spirit of self-preservation. Love will move toward others in a spirit of self-sacrifice. You know, so if when I'm fearful and insecure, I'm thinking about myself and I'm not reaching out to love, I'm pulling back in to not get hurt. 
when I love, I'm risking, I'm sur- surrendering myself, I'm, I'm seeking to serve. Now, nobody has perfect love. So we don't have, have our fears completely banished. But the more we love God, and the more His love is in us, the more we love others, even, the more um, fear will, will not be there. You know, the fear will diminish. Because, because our, our motivation is more love. We have more boldness. We have more initiative. We, we care more. We, we focus on others and not on ourselves. Um, if, if our relationship with God and our love for others is very fear-oriented, I'm just thinking all the time, I've got to do this or I'll be wrong, then our relationship isn't very deep with the Lord. It needs to be growing to be based on love. You think about this in connection with our love for God or fear of God. You take a kid who's afraid of his parents, little kid, and he only obeys them because he's afraid of them. When will he not obey them? When they're not around. Yeah. But what if he obeys because he loves them? When will he not obey them? He'll always obey them. He loves them. You know, we come to love God and, and, and serve Him out of love. You know, because we, we, we appreciate, we admire, we want to be close to God. Not because we're so much afraid of being lost. It's more we really want to be God's people. We want to give ourselves to God's mission. But he says that we love because he first loved us. We couldn't live secondary. We couldn't love secondarily if he hadn't loved us primarily. You know, he made the first move. And really, it's experimenting and, 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 ex- and receiving his love in our life that enables us to love others. I think I'm right in this. One of the things that I typically say to somebody who's struggling to be patient with others and to love others, I, I talk to him a lot about God and his patience toward them and his love for them. Because a lot of times people who are just really impatient and, and, and unloving toward others, they're very harsh with themselves as well. Be- what's the problem? They don't understand God. They haven't really picked up on the nature of God, the love of God, what the love of God really means, and therefore they don't share with others. The more we are filled with the love of God, the more natural it is for us to extend that to others lovingly. So the person who's not showing love probably doesn't receive the love of God, doesn't understand the love of God. If someone says, I love God and hates his brother, he's a liar. Well, why couldn't you love God and still hate your brother? Which is easier, to love God or to love your brother? To love God. I say here to love your brother. Because you can see him. You, it's concrete. Um, that, that If you don't love your brother, you can't love God. You know, I think that's the starting point. I, I, I may be wrong about this. But here's something that I've come to, to really think more. It's hard to love God. In some senses, God is not 
very concrete to us. It's more abstract. It's hard to love an abstraction. Now, God reveals himself in very personal terms. So the more we get acquainted with the God, the Bible, I think the easier that it is to love him and see him in personal terms. But, it's, but, but I really think we come to love God more as we love others more. That loving others opens us up to having a closer relationship with God. And that he's really saying here, loving others is almost the first step. You love others to be able to love God. I think loving others makes you more real, makes you more loving. Really, it changes you a lot. So he says, someone says, I love God, and he says, brother's a liar. The one who does not love his brother whom he has seen cannot love God whom he's not seen. See, he's actually saying that, that you start with loving your brother, and that leads you to loving God. What do you think about all that? It's a little bit of both, obviously, because he goes at it from both angles. But I think in this second sense, it's easier to love somebody you can see. Um, And and you can specifically relate to. And that... I don't know. It seems like loving other people changes my heart and makes me more loving and therefore it's easier for me to love God. After all, men are made in the image of God. So loving men leads me to that kind of attitude I had, ought to have toward the Lord. But loving loving men is messy. Yes. And, I mean, it, it, that's why I was saying it's it's easier in one sense to love God because He's perfect, and he's not going to let you down, and, and and all of this, and and you kind of at least you can say, in a sense, you love God and have this abstract feeling thing happening. But then, whatever, as in one sense, I guess the way this puts it, when you try to translate that into loving an imperfect person who has, you know a great capacity to hurt you, it's more difficult to do that. Yeah, in some ways. Um, but I would go back to just the idea, it's hard to get our mind wrapped around God. He's so different. He's so other. We haven't seen him that I think there are ways in which we can have more... It's easier to start with emotion of love and a desire to bless and to help, compassion for fellow human beings, for, for brethren especially. I mean, you, don't, you don't have to agree with that, but that's kind of where I'm at at the moment. Um, and, and I think that's what this is saying, but you know, it may not be. I mean, think about... This, if someone says, I love God and hates his brother. You know, 
if someone says he has the Father but denies the Son, if someone says he knows God but disobeys him, you've got all three of those tests, the moral test, the doctrinal test, and the social test. You have some statement about if somebody says, however, they contradict themselves. Uh, so our relationship with God is not based upon what we say, it's based upon how we act. You know, to talk about loving God while hating your brother is just a lie. If you love God, you will love your brother because God loves your brother. And you'll have the same attitude toward him that God does. Thoughts and comments? All right, chapter 5, verses 1 to 5.